Welcome to Ana, Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features John Quinley and Zaw Wynn of Fortify Rights and Roger Pollock of Yale Law School Shell Centre, co-authors of the Nowhere is Safe report. The 193-page report, based on more than 120 interviews, exposes how the Myanmar military junta murdered, imprisoned, tortured, disappeared, persecuted and forcibly displaced or transferred peaceful protesters, activists, political leaders and other civilians throughout the country in the six months following the military coup on February 1st, 2021. It provides the most extensive legal analysis to date, finding that the Myanmar junta is responsible for crimes against humanity under international law and reveals the identities of 61 Myanmar military and police officials who should be investigated and possibly prosecuted and the physical locations of 1,040 military units nationwide. Nowhere is Safe reveals new information about the military chain of command and thorough legal analysis of the hunters' widespread systematic attacks on the people of Myanmar. In this episode, John, Roger and Zolwin discuss the report in detail and the need for the international community to address impunity by the military hunter, hold perpetrators accountable and end ongoing attacks on the people of Myanmar. Let's start the conversation. We're joined uh, today by uh, Roger Pollock, Zoe Wynn and John Quinley, who have been behind the Nowhere to Hide report that has come out on Myanmar recently. It, it's a joint investigation with Fortify Rights and Yale Law School, Shell Centre. Um, so if you wouldn't mind each introducing yourself, just so our listeners can identify each of your voices. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm Roger Pollock from Yale Law School's Shell Centre for International Human Rights. Uh, hi, I'm John Quinley, uh, and I'm with Fortify Rights. Hi, my name is Zoin, and I am a human rights specialist at Fortify Rights. Great. So um, we were saying that it's like it's a huge report. It's 193 pages long. So, John, you might just give us an overview of those first six months uh, since the coup. Yeah, thank you for having us. The, the main overview I have is we kind of started documenting human rights violations during the start of the coup on February 1st, 2021. Uh, and the report focuses on the first six months of the coup primarily. Um, and that's when a lot of street protests uh, and the civil disobedience movement uh, and protest movement started throughout the country. Uh, and soon after that, the military junta started cracking down on those peaceful protests. So that's when we started doing in-depth uh, interviews. So those are long form investigative interviews with survivors and eyewitnesses, protesters, medical professionals, um, members of the armed resistance, former members of the military. And so we conducted a uh, 128 interviews uh, in 30 townships in 13 of the country's 14 states and regions, uh, and then also in um, Nepido. On top of that, we collected manually collected over 1,000 open source data points about information on specific incidents of human rights violations, so murder, torture, imprisonment. I guess just for background, the, the report title, Nowhere is Safe, comes from a 25-year-old woman in Mandalay 
And that's her describing how she and members of her family uh, were on the second floor of a building and a joint force of police and military came into the house at that time and they shot two, two rounds uh, and entered an upstairs room of, of the, of the home where the family was gathering. Uh, a seven year old girl jumped on her father's lap at that time and, um, uh, the girl was shot by the military and the woman told us from a hiding place after the family fled the violence. She said, they dragged away my brother and they killed my sister. We are now in a hideout place where it is supposed to be safe. Actually, nowhere is safe. So that was just one of the testimonies that, that we were able to gather. Uh, but I'll hand it over to Zawin or, or to Roger um, to, to talk about uh, more details. Zalwyn, you might just maybe give us an overview of Fortify Rights and what it is you guys actually do, just for anyone who doesn't know. I'm sure most people listening uh, will already know uh, your work, but it might be good just for anyone who is new to, to Fortify Rights. Yeah, thank you. So as a Fortify Rights, we are uh, kind of a regional human rights organizations working in the uh, Southeast Asia, in Myanmar, Bangladesh, Thailand, and uh, Malaysia. Right now, we are working uh, on the human rights situation in the regions. And uh, as a team, John and I, especially, uh, I work for a Rohingya community in, in Myanmar and Bangladesh. As you know, there are uh, more than a, about a million uh, Rohingya refugees now in, in the camp in, in Bangladesh. So we are working on the social Rohingya issue as well as also Myanmar issue because uh, the Rohingya community are also part of Myanmar. So we are working in Myanmar and Bangladesh. So um, we are working kind of uh, investigation. Our, we are a bit famous, familiar amongst the community of our investigation work because we are very uh, actively investigate what is going on in, in the region in terms of the human rights. So, yeah. So in terms of this report, I think we as a team, we work for this report. So uh, we uh, communicated with the big team, the survivors, the protesters inside Myanmar to collect the, the testimony of what was going on uh, right after the coup uh, for February 2021. So we, we talk uh, uh, like about 120 uh, people testimony um, uh, we got received from inside Myanmar for the coup. So we also talk not only the protesters, but also the deserters, like for example, the militaries, the police deserter, Navy deserter, uh, who, who dislike this kind of crackdown by the junta uh, on the uh, unarmed civilian peoples. So uh, when we call them the survivors, so we always keep in mind that to put the priority of the safety and security of these uh, survivors because they are picking with us from, from inside Myanmar. So we, we, we always have to take care of their safety and security for us when we are talking. So for example, when we are talking about the Sattar, so they also, uh, some are very willingly gave up the testimony because they really don't like the counter-activity and the cracking down, the violence uh, against the unarmed civilian peoples. So that way we are able to effectively uh, document and uh, find the, the documentations on this uh, violence uh, since after the, the coup. So especially we, on the further report, I think we, we especially focus on the first, very first six months after February 2021. So yeah, so this is especially based on the past months. And Roger, you have a slightly different role to play. You've been looking at the legal aspects, um, particularly the crimes against humanity. And there seems to be a lot of evidence in the report for crimes against humanity since the coup. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, thank you. And it's been a real honor to work with Fortify Rights on this important report. I had done work with Fortify Rights in the past, uh, worked on the 
legal analysis on the sold by fish report, which assessed crimes against humanity related to the trafficking of Rohingya, as well as the Long Swords report assessing that the military had committed crimes against humanity and genocide against the Rohingya from 2016 and 2017. And this report, uh, as John and Zawin said, it looks at the first six months. And we, we chose to look at the first six months because when you think about the military's actions since the coup, I think we can break them down in, into two specific periods. There's the immediate post-coup crackdown, where in response to the coup, the people of Myanmar took to the streets in, in extremely large numbers. You know, some days, especially February 22nd, just three weeks after the coup, estimates are up to a million people or more taking to the streets. And that pattern that we saw of protesters demonstrating and exercising their rights courageously, that lasted for the first couple months in, in large numbers, but you saw the first killings, you know, February 9th in particular, and then massacres in March, uh, in Lang Thayar in mid-March, and then Armed Forces Day, uh, over 140 people murdered by the military on March 27th. And those large numbers of massacres continued in Bago in April, killings and forcible displacement in Mindat in May. And so Fortify Rights and Shell Center, we document this and we analyzed it looking at precedent from the International Criminal Court, from cases that examine crimes against humanity at ad hoc tribunals, looking at the situation in Yugoslavia, in Rwanda, in East Timor, and in Cambodia. Also cases at the ICC examining violence in the Democratic Republic of the Congo uh, and tribunal regarding Sierra Leone. All told, we looked at over 50 legal cases and comparing and contrasting them to what we saw in Myanmar. And I guess just to back up, you know, to define crime against humanity, it involves a commission of one of these prohibited acts, murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation or forcible transfer, imprisonment, torture, rape, rape and other forms of sexual violence, persecution, enforced disappearance, apartheid, or other inhumane acts. And looking at the totality of the information uh, that we collected in this report, we found that there was evidence to show that the Myanmar military had committed six of these acts, murder, imprisonment, torture, enforced disappearance, persecution, and forcible transfer and deportation of a population, again, within the first six months. And I can go into some of the acts in a little more detail. Maybe it'd be helpful to talk about murder a little bit and, and flesh out how we looked at that. Just looking to ICC precedent, you know, they explain when they looked at massacres in the Congo, for example, they looked and said that murder is a perpetrator acting in order to cause the death of one or more persons or was aware that death would occur in the ordinary course of events. And the junta in their crackdown consistently used military snipers and live ammunition in the course of shooting deaths of protesters. The interviews that John spoke to about doctors treating protesters and eyewitnesses, noting that individuals were killed with a single shot to the heart, above the ear, the bottom left side of the head. These show intent, uh, the use of snipers consistently. The premeditated nature of it was pretty clear as well when, when you look at pronouncements that the military made you know, on live television on March 26th, the day before a major crackdown on Armed Forces Day, saying 
You should learn from the tragedy of earlier ugly deaths that you can be in danger of getting shot in the head and back. And then the very next day, again, killing over 140 people uh, with shots, not all of them, of course, but many of which were shot in the head and the back. Um, and I think the testimony that was collected is particularly strong in, you know, there's the legal analysis, there's the facts, but one of the things that I am most proud of in this report and the great work of Fortify Rights is the collection of testimony and how it brings out individuals' voices in the report. And I think JQ spoke to that in quoting the 25-year-old uh, young woman whose sister was was murdered. And people also talked about what they witnessed in the course of these massacres. And if I might just read one of them, uh, a person talks about what he saw on Armed Forces Day in Lang Township in Yangon. And he says, uh, it was about 2.30 p.m. when they started firing bullets into the crowd. About 100 soldiers and 200 police came to the protests. The police had rubber bullets and guns. The military had long firearms. There were also snipers. I saw shooters on a building in our quarter. I saw the shooters and I saw them shooting. There was a man shot two feet away from me. The bullet hit his head. It went through the backside of his head. The man was running away and he was shot by a sniper as he was running on the sidewalk. And then the eyewitness concludes that the person shot says he was 29 years old and he was my friend. And what this shows again is that it was the Myanmar military committing these acts and that they were using snipers and they had the intent to kill and to, to murder. And so we look at each of these individual acts that way. We look at murder, we compare and contrast court cases in international tribunals that assess murder, that assess imprisonment and torture, enforce disappearance, persecution, and come to the conclusion, again, that uh, the Myanmar military in these first six months indeed did commit crimes against humanity, that there are reasonable grounds to believe to use the, the legal standard, the standard required to issue an arrest warrant uh, that, that they did commit these crimes against humanity. I'm just curious, Roger, when you say that there, that like there's enough to to have an arrest warrant, who has the power to do that in this situation? Yeah, so the ICC has the power to issue an arrest warrant. And, you know, Zawin and, and JQ could speak to maybe the special command. I think those would be fantastic first targets to, because of course, if you're issuing an arrest warrant, it's against a person. And so I think the report does really provide some groundbreaking information on the special command and on the on the command structure that was set up to direct these attacks. And just to add on to what Roger was saying, in the report, we identify 61 senior military and police officials that should be investigated and possibly prosecuted for, for international crimes, including crimes against humanity, which is what Roger is talking about. So with those 61 people in mind, you know, we also go into a little bit of detail on uh, the special command, uh, which we had communication with six active military sources, which were inside the military and hadn't actually deserted yet. So it was all Wynn and I and, and others on our team. We interviewed 11 deserters. But on top of that, we also spoke to six people that were still active in the military. These people, according to colleagues that spoke to them, consider themselves watermelons. So red on the inside, but green on the outside, meaning they still have their military uniform, but they're still trying to help the resistance from the inside. So according to the six active duty military sources, uh, on February 2nd, immediately following the coup, 
the commander in chief Men online, he established a special command led by four senior generals to respond to the situation that, that happened. Um, and the special command was provided with military authority to deploy and command troops in civilian populated cities and townships where soldiers had not typically been operational. Um, so this made the systematic nature and the widespread nature of the crimes a lot more easily possible because that special command was able to just go and order troops to go into these cities and towns that they, they weren't previously in. And I think Roger and his team did a really good job at analyzing that, you know, the special command had understanding of the troop movement and ordered a lot of what, what was going on. The chief commanders, uh, some of the people within the special command would be uh, special operations, regional military commands, light infantry divisions. So those were all commanded by the special command. But I also just want to say, like on speaking to uh, military deserters, the NUG came out with a statement, the National Unity Government, many months ago, but they, they called upon people inside the military still to actively desert and to keep having defections take place. And defections can not only help the resistance, but it also can help international accountability mechanisms be able to better understand what's taking place and be able to hold uh, perpetrators accountable. Uh, and so these would be considered like in insider witnesses that would work with international accountability mechanisms. So I think more military police, Navy, Air Force, uh, joining the resistance movement is uh, really important. And I should, I should add to, I said the International Criminal Court, the ICC, has the ability to issue an arrest warrant. But actually, right now, it cannot take up this case as it stands. The National Unity Government has submitted a 12-3 declaration to the International Criminal Court, to the member states that make it up, and to the body that governs it. And uh, they have not picked it up to make a decision on that yet. They, of course, the ICC, the prosecutor, is uh, investigating the crime of deportation. Uh, as it relates to the Rohingya and the, the acts involving that, but that it's able to look at that because it has jurisdiction over acts in Bangladesh. And the prosecutor has said that the crime of deportation necessarily involves two states, the state where they're forced from and the state where they're forced into. But other national bodies, that national courts that have laws on their books, for example, Germany, Argentina, other other countries in Europe, that have the same legal standard and the same definition of crimes against humanity in their national laws. Crimes against humanity, genocide, are considered crimes against everyone. And the jurisdiction expands outside of their national boundaries. And so you know, there's a case in Argentina regarding the Rohingya. There's a recent case involving torture in Turkey. A complaint was submitted there. And I think we'll, we'll see more of these national cases that bring up crimes against humanity in the current context. I'm just curious, John, when, when you're talking about the kind of, I think it was 61 military and police commanders that were identified in the report, are all of those subject to sanctions in the international countries or not? Yeah, that, that's a great question. From our research, we found that I think only 20 of the 61 that we identified were currently on sanctions list. So we obviously are going to be 
trying to work with governments and hand over that list of, of names to governments so they could sanction more people, including this, the more than 60 uh, on our list. So at least from the research that we did, we, we found that only 20 of them had, had current sanctions on them. And I think that's something that governments uh, around the world should be doing more of is doing individual sanctions on military perpetrators, uh, but also on corporations and their entities including gas revenues and, and things like that. But also, you know, uh, there's a need, uh, a really urgent need because of the situation in the ethnic states in Kreni State and Kren State and Chin State where the full-blown uh, wars and shelling and, and helicopter attacks on civilian populations, there's a urgent need for a global arms embargo and a coordinated uh, arms embargo to be able to stop uh, the sales of, of those kind of weapons to the, the Myanmar military. I often hear that debated uh, amongst, who would I say? I can't even say activists. I just, uh, Twitter people. What do you call Twitter people? (laughs) But for every person who says we should have an arms embargo, there's somebody else who says, no, you know, you don't know what you're asking for, you know, and they're kind of dismissed. But it makes sense to me. But why would there be arguments against it? Why would countries be so reluctant to enforce that? I think it's because two other countries that are on the Security Council that have the ability to veto a comprehensive arms embargo are continuing to sell arms to the military. So China and Russia in particular, I, I think that's more the argument, you know, that it, it won't happen, less so that it's a not a good idea, but a bit of a fatalistic view. But, you know, I think we argue, put the resolution before the council and give it an up and down vote, just as was done in the case of uh, Ukraine, not with regards to arms embargo, but the overall situation. There hasn't been a single resolution on Myanmar. There's been talk in the council. They've had informal meetings. They've issued presidential statements, uh, but there has not been a single resolution put forward on the situation in Myanmar uh, since the coup. And and that needs a change. And uh, I think an arms embargo should be put in place. And you know, if not a comprehensive arms embargo, I think everyone should be able to agree that those weapons that are being used to kill civilians. So artillery shells, jet airplanes, and armored personnel carriers, rockets, those, those types of weapons, there should at least be an embargo on those. And those countries that want to continue to sell vanity weapons like submarines to the Myanmar military, you know, maybe they can go ahead with that arms trade. But those weapons, which I, of course, disagree with, but if, you know, there should be a consensus amongst the international community that those arms that are actively being used to murder civilians, displace civilians, um, should be prohibited. I'm just wondering, Zolwin, maybe you, you might be best placed to answer, because uh, obviously you've done a lot of work uh, previously with the Rohingya genocide. Do you think if there had been more action then from the international community, we might not find ourselves in this situation again in Myanmar? Do you think the lack of action at that time has played a, a part in, in this this current situation? Yeah, so I would say, yeah, actually, um, during the Rohingya genocide, I think they, they uh, used the same uh, chain of command, uh, special orders come from the regional commands from regional commands to the military operation commands, it's called MOC, is under the, the regional commands. And then this comes to the respective personnel uh, to track down the genocide. So um, when we talked to some deserters, they said that, uh, for example, they didn't like to uh, join this tracking down 
by the junta, the, the operations, the violence, like murders, arrest, forced disappearance, this one, this one, this one because like one of the, uh, the military uh, captain, when we call, uh, we talk, we spoke with him, um, he said that, uh, for example, he has been working for 14 years in the, in the military and the department where he works is uh, like a directorate of public relations and psychological warfare of Myanmar. So he's especially uh, work on the printing uh, production, the military productions. Uh, so they have to use a track down, violence, revolution, some of these kind of things. So that's why he doesn't want to use this in the uh, press that uh, belongs to the uh, military like channel. It's called Miao the channel that belongs to the, uh, the military. So that's why he he want, he left. He decided to, to leave the military to to resign from his job because he doesn't want to kill his own peoples. So even though the others are the other militaries are killing the, the people uh, as if they, this is their duty, when they receive the orders, they just kill them. This is their killing is this their duties. So, but I didn't want to to kill the people. So, I like I am telling you this because the same action kind of operation was taking place in back in genocide operations, the area cleansing operation. Because, uh, like the senior officers gave special orders, like to do anything, like the arbitrary arrest, murders, forced disappearance, kind of uh, mass killings. That's why we have found uh, a number of mass killings in in a specific villages. Of Rohingya villages in, in northern Rakhine, so they, they 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 used very very freely. They could they could rape the Rohingya women in the in, in northern Rakhine. So they they do this because they like to demoralize kind of helpless the Rohingya community. This is the, the, their intention that to to compel all the people from the Rakhine soil, uh, like they didn't want to see these Rohingya communities. So this is the same technique of operation they use to track down. Not only the Rohingya population, but also the inner side of Myanmar, like what is going on uh, in Myanmar on the unarmed civilians. So, and then if I tell you another example, like another police officer uh, is working for a communication department in the police, and he's been working for 10 years. And the military intelligence officer is called Sarapa uh, in, in Myanmar, the military nurse. They used to come to him and give orders to, to arrest this person, to arrest this, especially the general administration department peoples and also the immigration who want to join the CDM or who are already joining the CDMs. But he doesn't want to, to do that because he said that I don't like to uh, to arrest the people because they are innocent. They don't like dictatorship, the military dictatorship. That's why they are joining the CDM. So why should I arrest them? So I don't want to issue any letters. That's why I, I have to leave my, my job because I don't want to go against uh, these people because those who are participating in the CDM, they are also my brothers, my sisters, and my kin, my siblings. So I didn't want to go against them because they are also peoples. So that's why he, he wanted to resign at that time, and he did as well. So that way, uh, the, the disasters gave us the testimony that why they do want to join this pregnant operation, uh, because they didn't want to, to kill their own peoples. As a, as a testimony, like one, one of the medical doctors, the volunteers who is treating the CDM people, the protesters, the peaceful protesters, at that time, he even told us that uh, we didn't know what's happened with the Rohingya community because we neglected this issue. And we thought that the military people are innocent. The Rohingya people are guilty. That's why they, they are was an operation of Rohingya community. But later we realized that in the urban cities, even they are killing their own people, like the Burmese, they are, they, the military people are killing their Burmese people, the other ethnic minorities. So we realized what happened, how the Rohingya people suffered, 
one day we are area cleansing operation against Rohingya community. So even they are from this coup, even the, the mass community, are like in Burmese community, they realize that what happened uh, against Rohingya at that time, like back in 2016 and 17, uh, because they realized that uh, like, like in Rakhine area, less media coverage area. So it doesn't reach to the media once what something happened in that area. The doctor told us that we can now imagine what would happen uh, with the Rohingya community because now we can we feel what is happening to our own people. So that way, uh, the, the mass community even kind of realizing what, what was happened with the Rohingya community during the area cleansing operation uh, back in 2016 and 17. Like from reading the report, it says that the 77th Light Infantry Division were in Yangon and they are the most notorious section of the military who were very active in terms of the Rohingya, is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, as far as the people we spoke to, they saw this kind of, there's a badge on the shoulder here, so it's 1077. So we tried to, to verify this, whether you could see the directly the badge by yourself, physically yourself. So the people who we interviewed, some of them can read and write very well. So they said, oh yes, this is 1077. I, I saw physically on their uh, shoulder. So that way we could verify this at the 77. I'm just wondering... What is the purpose of this report like for you guys then? Like, it, obviously, it's to bring awareness to the situation, but you obviously have a list of recommendations for many people, including the National Unity Government. Is your hope that all those stakeholders will act on your recommendations? Is it a hope that someone will take it to one of those courts, national courts, or that the ICC will take it on or the UN will intervene? What is the, I guess, hope with a report like this? I can let uh, Zawen and, and Roger speak speak more to this, but I think one of our one of our major goals is providing evidence to the international investigative mechanism on Myanmar, the IIMM. Uh, and we say in the methodology to the report that some of the testimony that we collected also gave consent to be able to hand over that evidence and that testimony to the IIMM. And the IIMM right now is actively investigating the crimes and they're preserving and collecting evidence of crimes that happened in the past and, and happened in the future. And so the IIMM can give over troves of evidence to basically any international court that brings up a case against the Myanmar military. So that means either a, a case of state crime, like at the ICJ, International Court of Justice, or at the ICC for individual perpetrators. So uh, we're in the process right now of collaborating with the IIMM to get them more evidence uh, and some of the evidence that was in that report and that includes testimonies of those that consented to, to give them evidence. Uh, and then we also have a, n- a number of recommendations but I can hand it over to, to Roger and, and Zalwin as well. Yeah, thank you, um, John. I think also to reverse the coup because without the democratizations, I think the country there would be not peace uh, because the, the military are ruling now and they are still killing the people. There is also airstrike in the ethnic community area and they are burning the villages still. So they didn't stop their operation yet. So I think even though it will take time, but I think our reports give a lot of awareness and of course going on inside Myanmar in terms of the operation by the junta. And as well as also, this is kind of a support for the international community to make the general senior general accountable for what they committed crimes against humanity in Myanmar. So I think this is really a kind of 
good way to to send them to the to the ICC and also elsewhere as soon as possible. And also, as this is the same group of senior generals that committed the genocide against Rohingya community, so our report is really supportive toward the international justice mechanisms for not only the Burmese majority but also the Rohingya community because they are the same group. Yeah, and I, I can completely agree with that. And I would say the answer to your question is yes. You know, all of the all of those things that you listed is what we want to see come out of this re- report and the the impact of it. And it is, you know, the most thorough analysis of crimes against humanity. I think the most comprehensive look at the acts, uh, the, the factual acts that have been committed. You know, the United Nations Security Council has the authority to refer this situation to the International Criminal Court. You know, our recommendation is that they absolutely do that. You know, and you asked Zawin, you know, just to add on to that about if some of these recommendations had been taken earlier, you know, could it have prevented the atrocities against the Rohingya? Fortify Rights did a great report a few months back, Ending Impunity, that looks at, I think it has, if I might say, it has a great timeline in the in the first few pages that show since the establishment of the International Criminal Court in 2002, atrocity after atrocity after atrocity after atrocity taken by the Myanmar military against the Karen, against the Kachin, against the Rohingya, of course, against the own Burmese, the ethnic Burmans. And it's it's this crisis of impunity that has allowed this situation to fester for the military to remain the strongest force in Myanmar, even after the NLD government nominally took control of the civilian side of the government. Of course, the military had this had this uh, ace in the hole, the ability to appoint ministers to the three most important uh, ministries to veto any constitutional change, a 25% hold over the parliament automatically, and a strong sort of off-the-books ability to raise funds and, and fund their operations. And without chipping away at that, which the international community made virtually no progress in, in the, in the last, I mean, really since 1988, you know, very minimal efforts and progress. And I think a lot of people who've been looking at this for a long time are, are not shocked that we're in the situation that, that we're in and probably won't change unless there's a dramatic sea change in the international community's response to this situation. So that's what we recommend in this report and do our absolute best to back up those recommendations with facts and analysis that demonstrate the gravity of the situation that we're in. And, you know, also looking at the situation in Ukraine and the international community's response there, within four days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the international community had imposed strong sanctions against against the Russian government, against oligarchs, against the Central Bank of Russia, preventing their access to their currency reserves, a ton of actions, many of which we haven't yet to see in the Myanmar context. Again, the tabling of a resolution at the Security Council, an emergency special session of the General Assembly, putting this issue front and center. And so I think if the international community put all of its resources, and I understand that there's not limitless resources, but for example, the standing up amongst allied countries of a cell that looks at the international assets of Russian oligarchs and of the Russian state and identifying and targeting those assets. Nothing like that exists in the situation of Myanmar. And so 
our hope is that reports like this and from other groups and colleagues can push forward progress on the situation in Myanmar and for the international community to take the situation more seriously and and take the action required to try to try to help the situation. Of course, that's not to say that the international community can wave a wand and depose the military junta through sanctions or or through investigation of assets, but it could go a long way. And we've yet to see the the actions that I think could be taken. And I guess just to follow up on what Roger was saying, I think we also talk about not giving to the junta and recognizing the national unity government. Um, and I think for a foreigner like myself working in the Myanmar context, it's just to come alongside the Myanmar people and keep international pressure um, as high as possible and try to support the Myanmar people in their, because they're at the forefront of the resistance. And so all the efforts that Fortify Rights does is just coming alongside and supporting the Myanmar people's efforts because they're the ones that have really kept the, the spotlight uh, on what's happening in the country. So really, I find, you know, we, we got to interview many, many survivors and eyewitnesses for this report, and they're all very courageous and went to great lengths to talk to us. And so I think that's something that really came through the interviews, which is how courageous the Myanmar people continue to be and resilient they continue to be. If you think it's helpful, I could, you know, I talked a little bit about the acts that make up crimes against humanity, but those acts have to be taken in a broader context. They have to be done on a widespread and, and systematic scale uh, with knowledge of the attacks. And I could sort of talk through those a little bit and how we how we came to that assessment, if you think that would be helpful. Yeah, because I think it doesn't have to be both, but it clearly was reading the report. Um, so it's more than enough evidence. And sometimes I feel with this word crimes against humanity, we say it and we don't really comprehend what it actually means. You know, it's it's like impunity and genocide. I feel like these are words that don't don't land and impact the impact they should. You know, we just like we hear them in news reports yeah. all the time. And so I, I think unpacking that a little bit. Yeah, will be really great. Yeah, uh, happy to do that. And, you know, I, I mentioned the, the 11 crimes that make up the acts, the acts side of crimes against humanity. We found that six of those applied in the first six months. But again, the context, they have to be done in a widespread or systematic scale. And, and the International Criminal Court and other tribunals have looked at widespread as the large scale nature of the attack and to the number of targeted persons and systematic reflects the organized nature of the acts and the improbability of their random occurrence. The ICC looks to large scale as being massive, frequent, carried out collectively with considerable seriousness and directed against a large number of civilian victims. And they look at a mix of quantitative, geographic, and temporal factors. For example, a case in in the Congo, they found that attacks were widespread that involved 300 murders over a wide geographic area that spanned nine months. Another case found that 200 deaths constituted a widespread attack. And when we look at the situation in Myanmar, again, in the first six months, over 220,000 people internally displaced as a result of the junta's violence, at least 940 people murdered, nearly 7,000 imprisoned, between 22 and 50 people tortured to death, just the ones that we were aware of, and potentially thousands disappeared. The tools of the state being used to engage in persecution throughout the country of anyone opposed to the coup. And within the first six months, the junta's attacks reportedly killed or injured individuals in at least 97 townships across 12 of Myanmar's 14 states and regions in Naypyidaw. So it's 
the the threshold numbers that there, there's not a bright line, but just looking at precedent, more people have been killed across the entire country and nearly 7,000 in prison, as I said, and, and hundreds of thousands displaced. And so looking at precedent, we found that widespread was was met. And as to systematic, again, the organized nature of the violence and the improbability of the random occurrence. Uh, the ICC, in examining that factor, they've looked at preparatory activities in anticipation of the use of violence and looking at coordination and planning during the attack. They've looked at moving attackers and trucks from one location to another specifically for the purpose of the attacks. And again, in the Myanmar context, and since the coup, there's evidence showing preparations at the state level or at the, at the military level, I should say, not the state level. You know, for example, in the early morning of February 1st, the very first day of the coup, soldiers fanning out across the country to arrest government ministers, lawmakers, and anti-military activists. Again, the state-controlled television, the, the military-controlled television and radio warning protesters that they might, quote-unquote, suffer loss of life or get, quote, shot in the head and back before these major incidents. And then the witnesses and, and leaked internal documents that show that orders were given to shoot protesters on an individual and organizational wide level. Uh, and the, the testimony of police and military deserters reporting that they received orders to arrest civil disobedience movement supporters and thousands of people being arrested since the coup. This all shows this, these preparatory activities and the systematic nature of it. And, and you talked about Light Infantry Division 77 and also 33 being moved. They were moved to locations where they weren't previously located for the very purpose of attacking protesters. And again, both, as you highlighted, both these groups have a history of human rights violations. They look to, the tribunals look to similarities in criminal practices and continual repetition of the same modus operandi. So it's one where patterns of violence are repeatedly implemented to produce the same effect on civilian populations. And, and we, we see this in the Myanmar context. There's an ongoing pattern of targeting NLD supporters and CDM individuals who are providing shelter and support to protesters, attacking medical and first aid personnel and volunteers. Again, in this first six months, those who are trying to give aid to protesters who were who were shot, um, attacking hospital staff and facilities, attacking any individual filming or photographing uh, the events. And there's also a pattern of in using the, the excessive use of force, consistently using live ammunition, automated machine guns, sniper rifles, as I talked about briefly, and the sequence that they used during protests, we, we looked at, you know, after protesters would retreat, we saw security forces advancing, indiscriminately shooting at them, and several incidents showing deliberate blocking of escape routes and pursuing fleeing protesters to arrest or brutalize them. You know, there's uh, interviews with Sister Anun in, in Kachin State. And in that instance, despite her pleas for restraint, security forces opened fire on protesters, leaving two dead from shots uh, in the head. And then this is the entrapment in Langthar Township and then opening fire on them uh, with live ammunition. And this is something that we saw occur repeatedly. To talk more about what's required in the contextual side of crimes against humanity, there has to be a course of conduct or a campaign or operation, a series of actions. So not just an isolated act, but a multiple commissions of a criminal act. And we certainly saw that these crackdown on protesters, raiding of, of homes, torturing individuals on a number of occasions. And the attack has to be directed against the civilian population. And, and we saw 
And just like in other cases um, that looked at civilian population attacks against farmers, teachers, those seeking refuge, we saw the same types of people attacked in, in Myanmar, students, factory workers, women and children. And importantly, the international tribunals have said that perpetrators can't escape liability for crimes against humanity simply because there's an element of armed resistance found within a population that is otherwise completely civilian by nature. So those you know, throwing Molotov cocktails or even the presence of PDF in an area that would not render the entire civilian population that is attacked by the Myanmar military as non-civilian, so long as the population attacked was predominantly civilian. And, and that's, that's what we saw in this case. And there's, there's factors that the courts look at to find evidence of a organizational policy. And there's six factors that are pointed to by the courts. There's evidence that the attack was planned, directed, or organized, that there's a recurrent pattern of violence, the use of public or private resources in the attack, the involvement of the state or organizational forces in the commission of the crimes, and statement instructions or documentation attributable to the, to the state, as well as an underlying motivation. And we found all six of these factors met in the context of the Myanmar junta's crackdown on the military. You know, first, the attacks on protesters were planned, directed, and organized. Many police personnel who fled Myanmar testified, you know, gave information to that effect that they were ordered to shoot on protesters. And martial law was imposed in areas across Yangon Mandalay by March 15th, many areas, at least 11 townships. Uh, There's this recurrent pattern of violence that I talked about. And the junta employed public resources to clamp down, you know, soldiers that were funded by the state by the military, deployed to protest sites using machine guns and rocket-propelled grenades. Uh, there's no doubt that Myanmar forces, that the state forces, military forces, were involved in the commission of the crimes. Groups that were sanctioned by, for example, by the U.S. Treasury, the 77th and 33rd Light Infantry Division, being involved in the suppression of anti-coup demonstrators. And again, as I mentioned, these dictates on the Myanmar radio and television station, saying that people should learn from the tragedy of uglier deaths, that you can be in danger of getting shot to the head and back. This evinces this this um, policy there. And the motivation you know, is a clamping down on protesters to try and cement their power. They want to stay in power despite their, their proxy parties suffering that dramatic loss in the, in the election. You know, I can go on and I mean, there's a whole part about knowledge, but I feel like I'm speaking a lot about this, but happy to take any additional questions or, or talk more. I know Ruth, her connection is really bad, but she has messaged me a question for you. She said she wasn't fully sure what you meant when you said about it can be taken to national courts. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, for example, uh, BRAC, they've instituted a case in Argentina about genocide against, against the Rohingya population in Myanmar. Germany, Sweden, other countries in Europe have the Rome statute almost verbatim in their national laws. And they can do that because, again, these these crimes, these atrocity crimes are crimes that the international community has said are committed against the entire civilian population of the world. They are they are crimes that offend everybody. And so anyone has jurisdiction to bring these these crimes into their into their jurisdiction if they if they put those on their national laws. And so a number of states have done that. And so they have the ability, even if the crime isn't committed on their soil. They have the ability to prosecute the crime in their jurisdiction if they have those laws, laws on their books. 
And what would be the likely outcome if they were to be successful in a country? Do they have the ability then to enforce it? I mean, there's a great example of Pinochet. You know, he was lured out of Chile and, and arrested when he reached UK soil and extradited to Spain and prosecuted there. Individuals in Syria who committed torture in Syria under the Assad regime were arrested and tried and convicted in Germany. So, you know, the, a case can proceed as far as it can without that person being present. You know, a complaint received, investigation begun. Um, states vary on their ability to try someone in absentia or not. So that would be a factor. But the case can certainly proceed to a certain extent without the person being on their soil. And if there's a way to lure a perpetrator uh, outside of Myanmar um, and detain them, you know, that's the that's the optimal outcome there. So would it be something you would encourage? 100 percent, 100 percent, without a doubt. I'm just curious, then, the other thing that I was thinking, um, because I know recently Australia announced uh, asylum to military uh, defectors, which is, I don't know how I feel about that, because I have friends who are students there who are not getting asylum, and they're in a really difficult position. So I find it a little strange. But I'm just wondering, because Australia have been the most lenient towards the military uh, in this whole situation. And even this week, we've seen some questionable meeting taking place as well. If somebody from these 61 military personnel identified in your report were to defect, would they be just absolved of their crimes and just given asylum? Like, or how does that work? Are they still people of interest or does that change if they defect and help? Yeah, I would just say the the people that we name in our report, they're all high level uh, perpetrators that were responsible uh, for overseeing the crimes that happened throughout the country. So even if these people were to defect, I think they should still be brought before a, a court. These are people that have overseen atrocities in Shan State, in Kachin State, in Karen State, in Rakhine State, with the Rohingya. Um, so I think for the list that we have, it's all pretty high level police and military officials. Um, these aren't low level perpetrators that would defect. So uh, at least that's just a, a point of clarity. For our list, there was a uh, two military defectors that left Rakhine State and were extradited to the Hague, to the ICC a number of years ago. They confessed to committing crimes against the Rohingya population, and they were brought to the ICC to the Hague a number of months after confessing to those crimes. Uh, and we believe that those two they weren't high-ranking military officials. And we believe those two are, are being used as insider witnesses, but obviously the ICC is not super vocal about what the process is uh, with them in, in The Hague. So I think, you know, they could have been prosecuted, but I, I think they could also be prosecuted and used as insider witnesses. So there's a number of different options, but yeah, I'll pass it over to, to others. Yeah, I think that's, that's right on. And maybe add, you know, I mean, if countries are going to have Australia would have their own process of reviewing individuals' backgrounds, and it wouldn't take much of a more than a Google search to find that some of these individuals are are involved, directly involved, overseeing atrocities. And you know, I mean, just like any criminal case, there's deals that could be made, and if, uh, if testimony could be provided, that would implicate individuals that are of particular importance uh, or light shine upon the involvement of others. Information provided that could be useful in other ways. Um, that would be on a case by case basis, of course, but I could, I could see situations where individuals, as John mentioned, 
could be useful towards broader prosecutions. And in terms of those prosecutions, who can take these people to these courts? I mean, I know the Myanmar Accountability Project has now taken a case to Turkey just recently. So is it these organizations that are, like Ruth has said, can I do it? Like, can a lay person with enough money take a case like this on, or does it need to be a particular organization? Well, it depends on the on the jurisdiction, but I mean, you know, if you have a well-pleaded complaint, you know, I think the, the model that we saw with the Syrian case, the Syrian case in Germany and Argentina is, you know, an NGO, an organization that has had the ability to interview individuals and and work with legal counsel to put together, again, a well-pleaded complaint, a complaint that they understand the jurisdiction's requirements to bring that case on. They've met those requirements. They have testimony in their complaints and and it's robust, you know, and, and is something that a prosecutor can pick up and use as a jumping off point to credibly go about the investigation to ideally issue arrest warrants and proceed with the with the case. Yeah, I mean, you know, anyone can anyone can file a complaint, but it to do it well is labor intensive, you know, and to make sure that you're meeting the national requirements of what what is required for a complaint, you know, takes some expertise and isn't isn't just slapped together, but but is a is a real process. Yeah, and I imagine you need to know the laws of the countries as well as the language and all of those things. It would be that's right. So Ruth, that's you can right. do it technically, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> go for it, Ruth. But, uh, <laughs> maybe get counsel too. Yeah, and I'm just, I guess, in the middle of all this, like in the report, and, and the one thing that's really great about it is the personal element. You have given voice to these people, but what supports are there for these people? Is there anything like, I mean, justice? Yes, but is there anything? Most of them have have lost their everything they've lost their their families or their homes and it's like is there any justice your report what is the hope for the victims other than giving them voice is there is there any anything that can happen for them any justice i i want to say i hope that the report is a process of also just truth telling and recording history as well and being able to record these these people's voices that that consented but another part of Fortify Rights work that we don't talk a lot about in the public realm is uh, our strengthening work. And that's something that we um, do for human rights defenders. And we provide them uh, working with a number of different funders to apply for human rights defender emergency funds. Uh, and so since the coup happened, a lot of people that are activists, that are CDMers and others that, you know, we spoke to and, and that, are, um, that are on in the broader network have fled the country, have gone into hiding. Um, and so these emergency human rights defenders funds can help support activists and their families to continue their work safely, to, to relocate within the country to get to safety or to try to relocate even, uh, you know, some people are trying to relocate along the Thai Myanmar border and, and, and other places. So our team um, is actively working with human rights defenders to try to uh, apply for these human rights defender emergency funds. They're, they're not always easy to get and you have to meet a lot of criteria and, and the situation that happened in Afghanistan and a lot of people that also needed emergency support in Afghanistan and, and in Ukraine now, uh, those applications become a lot, a, a lot slower. But that is something that our team is, is actively doing as well on top of the documentation work that we do. Yeah. I always wonder that, you know, they give all that testimony and I mean, they hope one day maybe in the future that they, their testimony will help to put those people 
behind bars, you know, or tried, but it doesn't happen as often as it should, I guess, you know. Just to clarify, we're not um, we're not providing human rights defender grant to the people that provided testimony. They they provided them uh, fully voluntarily. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I just mean generally activists. You do try to support them, or at least let them be aware that these things exist and that they are entitled to apply for them. There was one other thing that that I wondered, and I don't know if I'm if I'm moving away slightly from from your report, but I know you work in Thailand also. And I find myself becoming more increasingly worried for the Burmese people on the Thai border. Is that is that a concern? Because Thailand, you know, recently they their embassy issued uh, to the Burmese embassy issued a kind of a warning to Burmese in Thailand not to be getting involved in you know spring revolution activities. Is that is that something that's a concern, or are we, are we thinking Thailand is still a relatively free? <laughs> dictatorship. <laughs> the, yeah, we're seeing uh, the, the Thai authorities still arrest activists and refugees in in places along the border, places like Mesot, and they also still don't allow border groups, humanitarian agencies, to fully supply humanitarian aid, unfettered humanitarian aid. There's a lot of restrictions around giving humanitarian aid along along the border. So I think Thailand, you know, still. They have obligations, and one of their obligations is the principle of non-refoulement, and that means not to push push refugees back to places. It's a it's a concept under international law, and over the last few months, we've seen Thai authorities do that with refugees and activists along the border. So I think Thailand, yeah, it needs to definitely just you know allow refugees to flee, provide safety, and provide humanitarian access along those border areas. I worry about Thailand. That used to be the kind of, it's just, it's, it's going through its own problems at the minute. And I just worry for, for people using that as a safe refuge. I'm just not sure it's as safe. I guess the only thing we can do in that situation is try and put pressure on Western governments to take more uh, refugees and resettle them uh, in other countries. And that will be the safest place for them outside of Thailand. Is there any other things that we haven't touched on? I'm mean, just the report's so huge and I don't know if there's anything like they never asked that question. <laughs> Was there anything <laughs> in particular that we, we haven't touched on? Uh, yeah, just back to your questions uh, earlier. To me, I think when the genocide kind of area cleansing operations uh, took place in back in 2017, so uh, Rohingya people are kind of shouting for their justice. So I would say that the international community didn't take that much serious of these issues. So that's why even you can see the U.S. government determined as a genocide very recently, like last month. So they took a bit of time to to solve kind of these issues. That's why the military in Myanmar got the impunity. They could really enjoy their impunity and they said they could further do these kind of crimes. This is their intention, their mindset, their ideology. That there is no problem for us because there is no a kind of justice and there's kind of accountability for the militaries. So that makes kind of more agar enthusiastic for them to commit more crimes, even their own peoples in, in South Myanmar. It's a fair point. And I think it's uh, like when you think about it, it's five years it took the U.S. to make that determination. It's a long time. I hope it's not so long um, <laughs> this time around. I think... Any doubt people had or any hiding behind the civilian government has been taken away. So in some ways, maybe this is going to be a good outcome from the Rohingya. Maybe without the coup, we wouldn't have that. I don't know. We have to kind of find a silver lining. But uh, anything else, John, that you wanted to add? 
No, thank you so much for, not for my side at least. I'm not sure about Zalwin or, or Roger, but thank you so much for having us. A lot of your guests have been really amazing, and I've, I've learned a lot. So, yeah, and you, you've been good. Uh, you've been a good supporter. <laughs> we say you're one of our super fans. <laughs> no, <I laughs> To listen and to, to give us some feedback. And yeah, you've introduced us to previous guests as well, which we really appreciate. And Roger, what about you? You know, the only thing I would maybe add is um, your question about the junta's attempts at blocking information. You know, and in this second, this sort of second phase that we're in now, thinking about the immediate crackdown as the first phase and how the military has stepped up its bombing campaign and artillery shelling campaigns against against civilians and villages as this sort of second phase. I think it's a sign in some respects of of desperation uh, by the military and acknowledging that their attempt to take over the country has has failed. And this comparison with with what's going on in Ukraine, I think, continues here, where you saw the Russians resort to bombardment of cities when they couldn't take control of them. I think, you know, the military is, is doing this the same thing. And in some respects, you know, using using Russian weapons to undertake the same sort of atrocities as we're seeing in Ukraine. Uh, but we're continuing to document uh, and speak with individuals who are directly impacted by this. You know, just a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we spoke with, you know, I spoke with uh, an individual who's who lost his two daughters, a 12 and 15 year old who were killed in an artillery strike. After they had fled their their village, they were in an IDP camp uh, in Kareni State, and his two daughters were. It was like one in the morning, and he told us how his his daughters were hit either by shrapnel or by the shell itself while he was out, and uh, were you know in explicit detail uh, what was what was left of their remains, and um, it's it's devastating, and and these these stories continue to to come out. And the mass killings and the increased attacks and Sagaing that we're seeing, we continue to speak with individuals who are finding ways to to connect uh, outside the country. And I think that that will continue despite the military's best efforts. You know, their their atrocities are not in the dark, maybe as much as they were a couple decades ago. There still is consistent information coming out on Twitter and and through through contacts. Uh, in the country. And, you know, we assess that the military and, you know, Fortify Rights has done some initial reports on this, that they're committing war crimes uh, alongside their crimes against humanity in, in these areas that constitute non-international armed conflict. The legal jargon to say civil war in some areas of the country where there are two sides fighting against each other, that the that the Myanmar military is not abiding by the Geneva Conventions or customary international law customary humanitarian law, and as I said, are engaged in, in war crimes as we speak in these areas. So, Wynn, any final words? We, shall we end on you? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so I have a few things to say that I'm like for the senior generals, like the military rulers, as the international community are not making them accountable for what they committed in the past. So now, like the people, the Burmese people are joining the PDF called the People Defense Force. So, for example, if the, the son joined the PDF, but the, the military are still arresting their parents, their son, their daughters, when they cannot find them. So this is the very important, I think, the international community 
including UN and the US government, I think. But again, there is also a barrier for Russia and China because they can put a veto on this. This issue brought up to the Security Council. But I think there will be other ways. I don't know. There will be other ways to make them accountable for what they are committing recently in Myanmar. Because of them, the innocent people are suffering unnecessarily. Thank you for listening to Arnar Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at Arnar Podcast, spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.